Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on June 2nd, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. The June issue of Scientific American magazine is out. It features a special section called 12 Events That Will Change Everything. Editor-in-Chief Mariette DiCristina, section editor Philip Yam, and I talked about the 12 events, as well as other items in the June issue. Mariette, this is a bit of a departure from our usual format. Where did this article come from? Actually, it came from a conversation that Phil Yam, the senior news editor, and I had once upon a time. Every so often, we stop what we're doing day to day, and we take a look ahead, and we try to see what are the things that are coming up that we ought to keep an eye on. And one day, Phil came up to me and said, hey, Marietta, in the course of thinking about things that we're doing, I keep track as the news editor of all kinds of things that, if they happened, would make enormous changes in people's lives. Do you think the other editors might be interested in such a thing? And I said, not only would the other editors be interested in it, I thought readers would really be interested in it. Yeah, and, and this that, is the beginning And that actually really surprised me because I looked at it purely as a functional, practical part of my job. I mean, if I thought about some of these events, if they happened very quickly and suddenly, how do we mobilize our staff? How would we cover it? Who would do what? So it really started out totally practical, on a practical sense. And it was Mary who decided, you know, our, a lot of our readers would probably enjoy reading about these. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we don't realize working on the insides of Scientific American all the time is that the editors, not just in working with the scientists, but also in their reporting and going out to meetings and doing other things and scouring the world for the best science that matters for readers, have a lot of expertise themselves. And it just seemed to me that this would be the kind of thing that readers might really find fascinating. What are the editors of Scientific American thinking based on all their conversations with the experts of the day covering various areas of science and technology and how it affects our lives. And this was the genesis of this story. It's true. Just as an aside, uh, years ago, I edited an article on the Komodo dragon <laughs> of Bob and Ray fame. But um, uh, there had been really only two people who had done serious research on Komodo dragons. Uh, some, some, might, some might argue with that and say that the the number is closer to the fingers on, on one hand for somebody who hasn't spent a lot of time in machine shops. And um, I, I figured by the time I was done, because I'd read basically all the literature and had uh, done work on this article that was written by a person who didn't really speak English, so basically rewrote the thing. I figured I was one of the world's foremost experts on the Komodo <laughs> dragon by the time I was done. So that's just a long way of saying that, yes, the editors here – really do become uh, experts in, in specific fields, given enough uh, coverage of that field. We stand on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, because, of course, we're working so closely with the scientists. And speaking of that, just one extra thing, as I was listening to you, Steve, when Dennis Flanagan and Gerard Peel reinvented this magazine in 1948, they one of the things they said is that science is not what, and I'm paraphrasing, science is not what people around think it is. Science is what the scientists are actually doing. And this is a case where we are tracking what the scientists are actually doing and thinking about and turning around and letting readers know about that. And you'll definitely see some big name scientists uh, in, in the section. So given that lengthy introduction, let's talk about what these 12 events that will allegedly change everything are. Why don't we go through them one at a time? Well, one of them, one of the other things I want to confess to everybody since we're talking about Scientific American's inner workings is that, of course, we don't just put the magazine to bed and it shows up on the newsstand the next day. 
it takes a few weeks to get the magazine produced and put out. So one of the ones here that just tickled me was the item on the creation of synthetic life, which we had put to bed now several weeks ago, and then last week, boom, out it is. Yes, and one of the things that we've done with these sections is to rate their likelihood by 2050, being that's a reasonable time frame for most of, most people to still be around then. And we rated that one as almost certain, and certainly with uh, latest news from Craig, coming out of Craig Venter's lab, that seems very, almost certain as well. And the uh, website treatment of this section is a multimedia treatment. It's rather extravagant and uh, beautifully done. Uh, I had nothing to do with it, so I'm not I'm not patting my own back. Uh, but since we're on the creation of life section, there is a, an interview with George Church on the website related to that section. Let's hear a little bit of that interview right now. To some extent, analytic biology, that is to say analyzing what's out there, is finite. But synthetic is infinite. I mean, it's, it's only limited by our imagination and, and, a, and a few physical laws. So some would argue that, that synthetic life or synthetic biology is a field that's already in, in full swing. Um, what, if, what it shares with uh, computational advances and DNA sequencing advances is that it's on a very high exponential curve. It's, it, it, so even though it does exist now, um, it's changing radically, maybe by factors of 10 every year, which is even faster than computing. George Church, by the way, a member of the Board of Advisors of Scientific American Magazine. Phil, what's uh, what's one of the other sections? Well, one which I really liked was uh, machine self-awareness. I mean, we always ta- we've seen all these movies like Terminator uh, that somehow someday the machines will become conscious and self-aware and then wage war on us. Or for you old timers out there. Colossus, the Corbin Project. Yeah, you shouldn't admit that too much, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say really old. <laughs> really, I mean, Terminator was already like 20 years ago. So. But what's interesting, especially about that one, and that one's a piece written by Larry Greenmeyer, was that, you know, all the popular science fiction uh, treatments of that kind of has it you know, suddenly happening and conflict between humans. But what, through Larry's reporting, it seems more likely that we'll see it coming, that uh, machine self-awareness will take the Will, t- will occur in a certain kind of stepwise fashion where they're getting better at certain at certain tasks. They will be able to do autonomous activities, and from there that you can actually see them develop. And it won't. Co- it shouldn't come as a big surprise to us if it finally happens. It might happen very quickly. I mean, machine uh, machines can evolve pretty quickly uh, if they're given the opportunity. But it's not going to be the sudden thing where Skynet becomes self-aware and launches all its nukes at us. I think what's what's interesting about this for me, or at least one of the things that's interesting is we barely understand how we can't even be said to understand how consciousness works in humans, but we know it is an emergent property that comes from many complex interactions among cells. And in like fashion, machines who learn how to learn can begin to accrue knowledge and build on it in ways that you could imagine how consciousness for them could begin to be an emergent process as well. And maybe we'll see it coming. I mean, we've we've been talking about the the death of Moore's law, the, the doubling of processing every every uh, a year and a half or so for a long time now. It continues to happen on like clockwork, and maybe it will come out and surprise us. But it, it shouldn't surprise us actually that things that emerge and evolve from complex processes come through from whether they're machines that humans are working with or whether they're biological life forms as well. Speaking of California, uh, we we have uh, another one, another one of these twelve events is the 
the big one, a large, a massive earthquake in California. Yeah, uh, the, we put, included the big one mostly because of the popular conception, at least in the American mind, about how dangerous and how deadly it is. There, are, I think everyone kind of remembers the first Superman movie where Lex Luthor kind of tries to also find, more than twenty years old, well, so. than 20, <laughs> pushing thirty years there. But when he tries to, to 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 push the western edge of California into the ocean to get beachfront property uh, from the desert, and I think that has settled into the popular consciousness that the big one will kind of rip California asunder. And but given what we know about how big earthquakes are, while it's still possible to have a huge uh, 9.0 magnitude earthquake, it's more likely that it would be a smaller earthquake, still big, significant, over 6.7 uh, magnitude, uh, almost certain to happen by 2038. Uh, but one thing it won't do is reshape California's coast. It's not likely to reshape California's because it won't be as bad, I think, as people had anticipated. Certainly not the way Lex Luthor portrayed it. I think one of the other things that this section promises and this one demonstrates, this particular item demonstrates, when we say not in the ways you think, people had this idea Phil is talking about where California is going to slide into the ocean and there will be mass chaos. Certainly there will be damage. But one of the things that's happened in the past, oh, I'm going to call it 15 or 20 years or so, is that our construction techniques for dealing with the vibrations caused by earthquake have been employed since then so that damage would be limited compared with what it might have been had it happened, say, 30 years ago before new construction requirements were put into place. I mean, we're focused on California earthquakes, but of course, severe earthquakes happen all over the world. And I think places, as Haiti demonstrated, even smaller earthquakes can uh, cause much greater damage uh, based on the construction there. So I think we've just got to keep it in perspective. We included the Pacific earthquake because of the strange conception that's, or the popular conception that's out there. So a massive earthquake would not remodel the coastline, but one of the other sections in one of the other events in this section is the rising sea level, which would drastically reshape the coastlines. Uh, especially uh, Florida, uh, and we have an interactive map on the website as well, which loops through and you can actually see how much intrusion uh, the seas will have on, on the Florida area. Uh, certainly we'll lose a lot of beachfront property along the East Coast. And this would almost certainly happen by 2100 for sure that we'll have a very high sea level rise. Uh, we we rated down, that down to... We took it down a notch to likely by 2050. And who made the determination of how likely or unlikely any of these particular events would be? Uh, it was a discussion between uh, the editors and the, and the reporters. We, we talked about it. Uh, we agreed, well, as based on the reporting, how does it seem? I mean, I had my initial impressions about how certain things would emerge or things that would happen, and I changed my mind based on some of the reporting. So, for instance, the human cloning, I would have guessed, would be almost certain by 2050. But in in the reporting, it just seems like it's a, it's a very tough job to do. I mean, biologists don't have enough practice with human eggs to do it reliably that you can actually generate a healthy healthy living creature. So human cloning is one of the 12 events that would change everything. And uh, we do have on our interactive web feature of the 12 events uh, an interview with Robert Lanza related to human cloning. Let's listen to some of that right now. <laughs> 
When it comes to human reproductive cloning, there are a lot of very serious concerns in the scientific and medical community, not only scientific. We know, for instance, that there are many uh, kinds of problems that occur in virtually every type of animal that has been cloned to date. For instance, when we cloned uh, one of the first endangered species, there were two of these what we call bantangs that were born, and one of them was twice the normal size. It had to be euthanized. So would you do this with a child? Would you want to have to euthanize one out of every two or three children that are born defective? In addition to the defective uh, potentialities here, we're also talking about only a very small fraction of the nuclear transfer units, the cloned embryos, actually will make it to term so that we will we have a very high level of spontaneous abortions. In addition to the many scientific problems, there are the, the ethical issues. And one of the things that uh, visitors to our website and to the section can do is vote themselves on the topic, whether it's likely, unlikely, almost certain. And one thing I've noticed so far in the past few days we've had it going up is that our readers seem to be a little bit more optimistic than we are. Um, for instance, we thought cloning would be very likely. They mostly rated it as almost certain. Uh, for high-temperature superconductors, we thought it was 50-50 at best, and they were actually slightly skewed above that. Fusion, Practical fusion energy, uh, which we thought was uh, very unlikely given the technical challenges, was rated at least 50-50, if not higher. So you've mentioned two of the other items in the section. One is room temperature superconductivity, and uh, Lewis Talifer is featured in an interview on the website. Let's listen to some of that right now. Superconductivity was discovered 99 years ago, in 1911, uh, in Holland, and it was discovered in Mercury. Uh, uh, so researchers there had just, uh, just been able to liquefy helium, which is the way to cool down to very low temperatures. So so they cooled down to, you know, minus 270 degrees Celsius. And they found this sudden disappearance of resistance, electrical resistance. So superconductivity was discovered. And then for the, for the next, I don't know, 70 years or 60 years up to not the, the early 1980s, the maximum temperature, uh, below which you could get superconductivity uh, rose slowly, but, but, you know, seemed to saturate around minus 250 Celsius, degrees Celsius. So very, very cold. But a, a discovery, uh, one of those revolutionary discoveries occurred in 1986 when a pair of uh, Swiss researchers, Bednorz and Müller, discovered a new family of materials, uh, which could superconduct at much higher temperature. So these are called the cuprates. The maximum critical temperature rose very rapidly from, let's say, minus 240 up to halfway to room temperature. And you also discussed the long-sought fusion power. And we, we actually just did a, an interview with Mike Moyer, our staff editor, who's the expert on that, uh, a few episodes back. And uh, so here it crops up again. And, and what's, the, uh, what's the general consensus on that? As Mike uh, indicates in his piece, and we all agree, it's it's just very unlikely. Uh, if you look at the uh, one of the big projects, the ITER project, I T E R, a uh, big thermonuclear uh, plasma reactor, uh, that's not even going to reach by 2050. Won't even be reaching experimental stage by that point. Phil, so we've been talking a lot about things that are likely, at least. 50-50 likely. How about something that's really unlikely, the um, discovery of extraterrestrial intelligence, which is one of my favorites? 
Yeah, it, it's un- we thought it was unlikely, even though I would have preferred almost certain, <laughs> very likely <laughs> myself. But uh, yeah, I mean, SETI's been going on, uh, going on since 1960 when Frank Drake first pointed his telescope and tried to listen for something. Um, and it's not so much that we've been monitoring the skies for 40 years since then, but really it's been very intermittent. There's very little time that um, SETI researchers have to actually scan the skies. Uh, to get telescope time to scan the skies, and even then, there are not there's so many parameters uh, involved to pick up a signal that it's 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 not a surprise, for instance, if, that we haven't heard anything from out there yet. And again, going back to the website, we have an interview with Frank Drake in the interactive uh, section of the website. Let's listen to some of that. We live in a galaxy of many hundreds of billions of stars, um, as we now know, many of which possess planetary systems. We need to search those many stars for signals and also many frequency channels. And our equipment to date has been able to do only a little bit of the required searching of all those possibilities. So we're at the beginning. And the fact that we haven't discovered anything yet is totally predictable. We're not surprised. We're not discouraged. We're getting very excited because our search capability is becoming very much greater. Speaking of outer space, uh Something that's, in my view, far more likely than uh, contact with any alien intelligence is an asteroid collision, and that's one of the items in here. That's right, uh, but at, at the same time, I would say that it's probably not going to be like the dinosaur killing extinction level kind of asteroid, the kind of things that we need Bruce Willis to fend off for for us. There, it, more like, old movie. <laughs> that one's only about ten years old. <laughs> but it was such a bad movie. <laughs> and I was at the end. I was rooting for the asteroid. So, well, it does have the great moment where uh, Steve Buscemi says, "I think it's time to embrace the horror." <laughs> But in terms of the, uh, an actual threat, I think uh, more of an airburst is more likely the kind of thing that happened over Tunguska uh, a century ago, which flattened a forest. But according to Ghostbusters, that's a trans-dimensional rip. <laughs> well, Another 20-year-old movie. <laughs> we're, we're big on the 20-year-old movies here, but, but it's the, I don't believe they found the ectoplasmic residue that was expected uh, at the forest. Somebody sneezes and you want to keep it, <laughs> to quote uh, Bill Murray. Uh, so we have the uh, the asteroid collision. Then we here's something that uh, every virologist I've ever spoken to says is going to happen sooner or later. We are going to have a big flu epidemic again. That, that's right. I mean, everyone kind of expects it to happen. And uh, with the what happened with H one N one, I think it showed showed that I think we were lucky there. It showed that uh, it was it turned out to be too. It, it was uh, easily spreading, but not as deadly as some of the other possible viruses. But viruses do. Can can mix their genes uh, given different incubators. Uh, pigs, humans, birds all together can really j- create a huge jumble, and you can create pretty deadly uh, deadly strains that way. One of the things that we covered uh, was several months ago now, Steve, by by Nathan Wolf was better tracking of viruses and how you know with the idea that you could understand and contain a pandemic better, and maybe readers could take a look at that in our archives. And another interview that's on the website is with Lawrence Gostin on the potential for a really deadly flu epidemic. Let's listen to some of that right now. The risk of a deadly global pandemic over the long term is actually quite high. Um, We uh, historically have had two to three major influenza uh, pandemics per century. 
Uh, and so uh, I think it's uh, a high likelihood. In, in, it, we're, we risk even more now than we did before because although we have a lot of um, medical technology, um, there are factors that could amplify the effects of a pandemic. Um, first of all, they can more readily be pathogenic because we've got a very close interchange between animal and human populations. So if you think, for example, that um, uh, avian influenza is highly pathogenic and that you that, that, that a high percentage of people with it die, but it's not very easily transmissible human to human. Or you might have the so-called swine flu, H1N1, which is not highly pathogenic, so people, it doesn't kill a lot of people, but it's very highly transmissible. If they were to swap genetic information, uh, one could have the perfect storm of, uh, of influenza. So I think that over the long term, we really do need to be prepared for a very serious pandemic. Okay, so that's almost everything. The other items that are included in the 12 events that will change everything are your nuclear war possibility and extra dimensions, which uh, is something that we may get a glimpse of uh, with the Large Hadron Collider. Um, it's a theoretical possibility. For instance, if it does form like a small black hole, that's evidence for extra dim- extra spatial dimensions. So, uh, or or, it would, or the, it would, uh, extra spatial dimensions would also affect the way small subatomic particles would behave, and you'd be able to detect that at the Large Hadron Collider. We wouldn't be able to enter this extra dimension ourselves, but it, it would be evidence that these things do exist. And according to many movies, if you did enter the extra dimension. You would be able to walk through walls, but somehow the floor would support you. <laughs> oh, one thing I did want to mention was, though, you know, we, we feature 12 events, but, of course, you can come up with several others. Or you can say that, uh, for instance, a super volcano or even just life elsewhere uh, on in the solar system would also, could also be considered an event that could change everything. And readers, uh, I'd be happy to hear readers' comments or read readers' comments on the website if they had their own nominations for kinds of events. But we kept it to 12 because we thought these were the 12 kind of the biggest ones for now. So that's the cover story of the June issue. And we have our uh, usual assortment of other fascinating pieces, something on the, the, a new kind, a whole new kind of mineral that was discovered in the Earth's mantle. It's called post-perovskite, and it is located outside of uh, the inner core. It sounded like right outside of Moscow. It's also outside of perovskite. <laughs> there's perovskite, and then there's post-perovskite as you're heading toward the surface, assuming you could head toward the surface because, of course, we have never been able to dig very far down. What's the record? Is something like 12 kilometers? I think you're about right. Yeah. And the way this researcher, uh, Kai Heroes, who wrote about this, he said Tokyo Institute of Technology – found out about this mineral was to, of course, try to replicate the conditions that far deep below the earth. And he used a diamond anvil cell and learned more about this, this super dense, heretofore unexpected material around the inner core. And it's really quite amazing because it's, I mean, we're not talking about something that's in trace quantities and a scientist happened to discover it. This is a fundamental aspect of the way the earth works. Right. It means that heat transfer and um, heat convection through the Earth's mantle and outside around it is more active and more dynamic than we had earlier suspected. So there's all kinds of good stuff like that. 
And uh, we're running out of time. I just always like to finish up by talking about something in the 50, 100, and 150 years ago section. And uh, 150 years ago, it seems like it was a tough summer in London because the Thames, well, let me just read what we wrote in June of 1860. Last year, during three months of very dry weather, old Father Thames, that once classic stream, became a huge sewer sending forth fetid odors over all the British metropolis. A report recently presented on the subject contains the statement that about $88,000 worth of deodorizing material, that's in 1860 dollars, $88,000 worth of deodorizing material was thrown into the Thames during the months of June, July, and August, chiefly chloride of lime, of which 478 tons were used, and chalk lime, of which 4,280 tons were used. These were chiefly thrown into the sewers, and while the temperature of the river remained high, from 69 to 74 degrees, the river remained proof against all efforts of deodorization, which is an 1860 way of saying, I think, that the river still stunk. Stank. Editor-in-chief. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Great preparations have been made this year to provide a sufficient supply of the perchloride of iron in order to modify the pungent powers of Father Thames's snuff box. <laughs> Such I have floral to say, writing. I have to say, if we were doing the dozen world-changing events, one of them might have been not maybe the you odor. Mean if we were doing it in 1860? In 1860. One of them might not have been the odor, but the environmental impact of dumping, what was that? It, in, in hundreds of pounds of material into well, these in tons, poor 478 river? tons of uh, chloride of lime. 4,280 tons of chalk lime. I guess we'll have to stay tuned to 1861 to see what happened to the surrounding (laughs) environment. So in June of 2011, we'll check back to see what happened in June of 1861. Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com where you can find the interactive version of the 12 events section along with the full interviews with the various researchers you just heard. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.